Wow, what a blessing. What a blessing. I'm excited to be here. If those in the back saw that I wasn't singing, it wasn't because I wasn't praising the Lord. I was saving my voice. And I'm not sure if it's going to be saved or not. The Lord knows all things. So I want to welcome each one of you here. My goodness, Arlen, I didn't know you had this many friends. So it's good to be here, rejoice in the Lord and the goodness of our God. Today, as we celebrate a Resurrection Sunday, I, I truly do hope that we know that it's meant to rejoice and celebrate every day, that it is a wonderful truth that our Savior died, was buried, and rose again. You know, I had to think about something. If, um, if someone died for you, you know, the scripture says, scarcely for a righteous man would one die. And it goes on to explain how Christ died for our enemies. It's like R.C. Sproul said, it's like a guy in the front lines running across no man's land and jumping on a grenade in the enemy's trench, taking the blast that was meant for the enemy. And, um, but I had to think this morning that if someone were to die for you, what would be your response to him or her? If you had the opportunity... You think, well, I'm so regretful that my hero didn't live long enough for me to thank him. So let me just tell you this. The resurrection means that you can thank the Lord every day of your life. You can thank him every day for the life that he gave you. And so our hero's not dead. He's not dead. But as we celebrate Resurrection Sunday, I want to remind you that there was a Friday before that. And um, we remember the mocking words of the chief priests and the scribes and the elders when they said, if you are the Son of God, I mean, just a picture that we see there is an amazing picture. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Prove to us your identity. Show us your power. And we will believe you. But listen, the proof that Jesus is the Son of God came to us three days later. Came to us in the resurrection. And it was one of the most profound, if not the most profound, and astounding demonstration of who he is. 
It was his power to take his life up again. He said, it is my prerogative. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the prerogative and the power to take it up again. And so he took it back up again. And Romans, Romans 1 and verse 4 says, and I better read that, lest I misquote it. But in Romans 1 and verse 4, it says this way, And declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Declared. Declared to be this person, the Son of God, through the resurrection. Yet, let me say, yet we were not reconciled. To God through the resurrection. And that will probably cause you to think. And so, my title this morning is Reconciled in Christ. And I want to, by the grace of God, I want to preach a gospel message. Now, on the cross, Jesus said, It is finished. He could also have said, paid in full. It means the same thing. He could have stamped a stamp, paid in full. Jesus, by these words, did stamp our statement of debt. Not with ink, but with blood. Paid in full. That invoice, that statement that says, you owe something. You owe it to God. Christ stamped it in blood, paid in full. That was the words of the Lord Jesus. It is finished. God, as it were, added his stamp of approval by the resurrection. And it says in Romans 4, in verse 25, it says this way, and I believe it came up already this morning one time. Who was, ra- who was delivered up because of our offenses, and was raised because of. Because of our justification. That's why. That's, he was raised because we were justified. And it is to say that the resurrection is God's stamp of approval on the death of Christ. And so, as we glory in the victory of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we now turn. We turn to why he died in the first place. Why did he die in the first place? And so if you would, turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. I want to begin in chapter 1. We have... about four or five verses here that will be our text this morning. Colossians 1 and verse 19. For it pleased the Father that in Him all the fullness should dwell, and by Him to reconcile all things to Himself by Him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of His cross. And you, who once were alienated, 
and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. In the body of his flesh, through death, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, it was an interesting this week. You know, whenever you prepare to preach, or this this my uh, habit, is I'll take a number of commentaries and I'll just start reading on the passage. And I I don't want to think myself so highly that I have to reinvent the wheel. Other people have more are better educated than I am, who have studied the scripture longer than I have, and so we read commentaries. And I was struck this week, actually it was on Good Friday, I listened to R.C. Sproul um, preaching in, on renew, in renewing uh, your mind. He was preaching, I'm not even sure, I forget what the, uh, what the title was, but he made this comment that really stood out to me, that in the epistles, in the epistles you have an apostolic commentary on the gospel narrative. You have an apostolic commentary on the meaning of Golgotha. On Calvary's hill, there occurred this wonderful but maybe mysterious thing. What was going on? And so, when we read the epistles now, we have a commentary on the intent and on the purpose of what happened on Golgotha. And so, I want to just bring that in and help you to think about that this is the commentary from the Apostle Paul through the inspired Word of God to speak on that Good Friday event 2,000 plus years ago. Number one I want to point out here, the first thing is I want to point out and note here in this text is the Father's pleasure. Notice in, chapter, in verse 19, it says, For it pleased the Father. Now, that is the... Um, that, that is the narrative and the, and the theme throughout all of the, of the Scripture is that there was intimate fellowship between Father and Son. That's the consistent message of Scripture. John eight twenty nine, it says, And he who sent me, Christ's own words, he who sent me is with me. He is with me. The Father has not left me alone. For I always do those things that please him. Think about it. John 1.18 says that no man has seen God at any time. But the Father or the Son, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in, remember, the bosom of the Father. He has declared him. So we have this picture of intimate fellowship between father and son from eternity past. 
And, and even in the high priestly prayer in John 17 in verse 5, and, and Brother Chris read that, where in verse 5 it says, O Father, glorify me together, or alongside, it means. Glorify me together with you, or alongside yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. You see, there was, there was this intimate fellowship between Father and Son from eternity past. John 5.20 says, The Father loves the Son and shows Him everything that He Himself does. How many times, brothers and sisters, does the, does the voice come from heaven? In the earthly ministry, ministry of the Lord Jesus... The Bible records in the Gospels five times that this voice came from heaven. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved. I am greatly pleased with him. It is five times in the Gospel, and one time, Peter quotes it in his epistle. If we go here in the Colossians passage, here in Colossians 1, we have another example of this, and that is in, found in verse 13, where the Word of God tells us that we were conveyed into or transferred into the kingdom of the Son of His love. When, we, when, when God speaks to us through the Apostle Paul in Colossians and he refers to the kingdom of God and he refers to the kingdom of his son, he calls him the son of my love. God is well pleased here in Colossians 1 in verse 19. He is well pleased in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that is vast implications for us. Think about it. If God is pleased with him, that means the world is not pleased with him. That means that the church of God should be pleased with him. It means that... The, he should be everything to the church if the Father is well pleased with the Son. Then our Savior has the affirmation. He, he, the Father is giving us the affirmation to His children that your Savior, that one who died for you, that I am well pleased with Him. For it pleased the Father. But specifically in verse 19 it says, he, the Father was pleased that in Christ all the fullness should dwell. That there should, be no, um, that there should be no lack. That there is no lack. And it pleased the Father that in Christ every bit of fullness that it could possibly be was contained in the person of Jesus Christ. Notice that it says that in Christ all the fullness should dwell. It should not just come upon him occasionally, but it should live there. It should abide there. 
all the fullness. Think about verse 15 through 18 as an example of this fullness. You can just glance back over the first of the the three previous verses, and you see the fullness of Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. In this amazing list of the fullness of Christ, here in verses 15 through 18, Therein it is called his preeminence. That he is before. He is before everything. He is before all things. He has the preeminence. Now listen, if you flip back to chapter 2, we see that through about verses 8 and 10, and you also see it in verse 4 of chapter 2, where Paul is now addressing something. That the, the biblical doctrine of Christology is not being maintained in the Colossi church. That there's a lack. That there's a danger. And he says, now this I say in verse 4, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, I'm not with you in person, but my spirit is there and I'm rejoicing over your good order. And he, he continues on, he says, as you have received Christ, now walk it out. You know, being established in the faith, being taught, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. But beware, he says, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principle of the world, not according to Christ, not according to the biblical Christ. After the basic principle of the world and not according to Christ. Now you be aware, when you hear somebody teaching about Christ, you measure that up with the biblical Christ. And you you decide by the inspired scripture whether this measures up. Because think about it, the Holy Spirit is all about showing you the things of Christ. Now here he says in chapter 2 verse 9, For in him dwells all, what? The fullness of the Godhead. That everything that is God is in the person of Jesus Christ. Isn't that an amazing statement? Because and then it makes it even clearer that all the fullness of the Godhead is dwelling in this bodily form. In the bodily form of the Lord Jesus Christ just to make sure that we don't get confused that, that, yes, Christ is God, but when he put on flesh, he was no longer God. No, Paul is saying that's wrong. All the fullness dwells in his incarnate person. Bodily. And then in verse 10, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. So what we see is Paul addressing a worldly philosophy and even the traditions of men after the basic principles of the world, and they are denying Christ. And sometimes I tremble 
that when I stand here behind the pulpit and I speak to the church as if it were God speaking, as if God had said what I'm saying, and when Paul says in Galatians 1, if anyone comes among you with another gospel, he's going to be accursed. And should we not tremble when we speak for God? Because a half gospel is no gospel at all. And if you add to the gospel of Christ, it is no longer the gospel of Christ. And if you, if you preach that as if it were the gospel, you are accursed according to the word of God. That's scary. So Paul is addressing that there is great fullness in the bodily person of Jesus Christ. It is all the fullness, actually, of Jehovah God. All the fullness of triune God is contained in the incarnate person of Jesus Christ. And he says, I am greatly pleased with this person. So, there was this heresy that denied the fullness of Christ's deity while incarnate. And in his humanity dwells or abides all the fullness of the Godhead. It doesn't come upon him occasionally. No, it is at home there. It dwells. And we have it in John, the Gospel of John, in the prologue of John's Gospel, where John the Baptist says, We beheld his glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father, full, full of grace and truth. And he continues on later in about verse 16, where he says, And we beheld his glory, the glory. Now, wait a minute. I think I'm repeating myself. In verse 16, And of his fullness we have all received grace for grace. Jesus Christ, full, full of God. God Himself, not just filled by God, He was God. See, there's a difference. So, in verse 15 of our chapter in chapter 1, Christ is the exact likeness of an invisible God. He's the seen God. He is now a God that you can lay your eyes on where before you would have died. But He is the seen God. He is the first in rank over all creation. Verse 16, He is creator of everything seen and not seen. He is creator of everything in the cosmos. He's creator of everything that is in the heavens and in the earth. And he created all these various categories of angelic beings. Thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers. That means that he created Satan. Though he was not a fallen angel. But he created him. Isn't that exciting? These things he made were made for him. He is the providential energy that keeps the universe functioning. In Him all things consist. 
Christ is the head of the church. That is, he's given to us as head of the church. What a wonderful picture. He is the beginning. He is first in rank over those resurrected. All this is listed for us to consider his greatness. But for us, here at Believer's Chapel, for us, there is a yet greater work of Christ that is not listed in verses 15 through 18. There's a greater work. And it is introduced in our text today. And that is the work of Savior. That is the work of Savior. So, number two. Number one is we see the pleasure of God in the person of Christ. In the person of Christ. Number two now, we see the pleasure of God in the work of Christ. In the work of Christ. Notice what he says. For he pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. And verse 20, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him. Whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Just as the Father had pleasure in the preeminence of his Son. So now it pleased him. It pleased him to give to Christ the work of reconciliation. It pleased him that in Christ we should be brought to God. We should be changed. We should be brought into conformity to God. It, it pleased the Father. That has huge implications. That if our reconciliation is in Christ and God is affirming that it is, then we should just preach Christ and Him crucified. So now I please Him to give Christ that work of reconciliation as Christ Jesus was qualified to create us and sustain us. So now He is qualified to save us. He's qualified to save you. He made you. You breathe because He holds the universe together. That 21% oxygen, what you need, He maintains that. Well, let me continue. What does He mean here in verse 20 by reconcile? What does He mean? I'm running out of time already. What is meant by this word? Well, in this very text, in verses 20 and 21 and 22, what it means to be reconciled is revealed to us. Just let the text explain the text, okay? It's right here. But the word means to change or exchange. And here in Colossians 1 is an intensified form of the word, meaning to change from one condition to another. Or to reconcile completely. And in verse 20, as we look at this text, in verse 20, for Christ to reconcile all things to the Father is described as having made peace. You see that? Having made peace. That is how we're reconciled to God through Christ. Christ made peace for us. We were at odds with God. But Christ made, that, made peace with us. Made peace with God for us. 
That is the act of reconciling. In verse 21 now, the condition in us that needs changing is described in dramatic fashion. Notice we are alienated, or as the definition is, non-participant. That's what that word means, is that we are not participating in the plan. We're alienated. And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by work at works, yet now he has reconciled. <clears throat> we're, we are aliens separated from God. And it is like Luke 16, where Abraham told the rich man in hell, he said, there's a great gulf fixed. You remember that? There's a great gulf between us, he said, between heaven and hell, that those in hell can't come up to us and those in heaven can't get down to you. There's a great gulf fixed. That is what it means to be alienated. There's a great gulf fixed between us and God, between the alien and a holy God. But notice, there's more than just separation. There's more than just separation. There's more than just the fact that you are not participating in God's plan, not participating in His kingdom. No, there's more going on here. In describing the condition that needs to be reconciled, that needs to be changed. Remember the definition of the word change or exchange. In describing that condition, it says that we are as if we were enemies. And you who once were alienated and enemies. So you can be an alien without being an enemy, right? You can be of another country and you're not at odds with America. You can be an alien and from, the, from, from, from our nation. You, you're not a citizen of America, of the United States. But that doesn't mean that you're an enemy. We have many friends, don't we, that are not American citizens. But not so in the kingdom of God. If you are alienated from the kingdom of God, you are an enemy, it says. There's no neutral ground here. The condition that needs to be fixed is that you need to be changed from this place of hostility. There's a hostility going on in this separation. You're not neutral. You're hostile. Enemies in your mind. Friend, if you are an alien from God today, you are actually hostile to God. The gulf fixed is not wide enough to suit you. It were as if you were out there with your puny little shovel trying to dig the gulf wider. It's not wide enough to suit you. He or she is engaged in widening the chasm. Though for you, your very life, you must, for your very life, you must get on the other side yet you persist in your sin. And in Romans 8 it says that to be carnally minded, again I'll 
read it to get it correct. Romans 8 and verse 6, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity. That's what this Colossians 1 is saying. It is enmity against God, for it is not subject. It is non-participant in the law of God. It is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's very bad news, isn't it? If you are in the flesh today, if you're carnally minded, you can't please God. There is no pleasing God in that state. That is the condition that we're talking about reconciling. That's the condition we're talking about changing here. You see, reconciling is to change the position of your relationship toward God. From being at odds, non-participating, to be at odds and, and even fighting against Him. That needs to be changed, brothers and sisters. Your mind must be changed. Have you ever thought about it? You have made a decision maybe, even just anything. You know in your mind what's, what you, you have made your mind up on, a, on something. In order for you to change your mind, you have to be a little humble, don't you? It doesn't matter what it is. We're so, we're so arrogant of our opinion. We think so highly of our intellectual capabilities that to change your mind is humbling. Listen, that is what we need spiritually. We need a serious mind change. We need to be reconciled. We need to have our attitude adjusted. Has your mind been changed? Notice that the condition is enemies in your mind. And out of that flow our wicked works. Now in verse 22, as we continue to look at the text about the definition and the, and the understanding of the reconciliation. In verse 22, to be reconciled by Christ to the Father is to be presented. You see that? In the body of His flesh through death to present you. To present you how? Holy. Blameless. And above reproach in his sight. That's what it means, brothers and sisters, to be reconciled by Christ to the Father. Is that he presents you before a holy God. Who, when he came down on the mountain at the giving of the law, there was darkness and thundering. And the people were scared to death. That's the same God, by the way. Now we're presented to Him and His all-seeing eye. We're as naked and bare before Him. But in the reconciliation of Christ, there is holiness. There is a blamelessness. There is above reproach. There is nothing that you can lay your finger on and say, He is wrong here. You see, in the reconciliation of Christ, we stand before God in these three ways. Holy, blameless, and above reproach. That's what it means to be reconciled. 
from this passage, that's the definition from this passage of the reconciling work of the Lord Jesus. Now let me just say that this change in status wrought by this reconciling work of Christ is so vast as to boggle the mind. It is so vast. It is worlds upon worlds apart. It is the difference between heaven and hell. It is the difference between suffering and peace. It is, it is all these things that you could possibly com- contrast. In It is the difference between a, a glorious eternity that can never be measured to a, to a hell that is unbearable. This is the difference. This is worlds apart. It is as vast a work accomplished as the distance from the earth to the furthest star. This great gulf fixed between the sinner and a holy God is bridged in a moment. The cross, it, it reaches all the way over to the other side of the gulf. From alien and enemy to holy and blameless and above reproach. Not in my sight, not in yours, but in, the, in our Heavenly Father's sight. In the eyes of a holy God, this is how He sees us, reconciled in Christ. That is un- unspeakable good news. That is God's perspective of you, reconciled saint. Notice verse 12 and 13 of chapter. This is the response that should flow out of our lives. Giving thanks to the Father who has what? Qualified us. Or as the King James says, the old King James it says, who has made us meet. Or it made us fit. He has made us fit to be what? Partakers. See, that's that opposite of non-participants, right? We are now qualified, made fit to be partaking of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and has conveyed us or transferred us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. What a, what a gospel we have. What an astounding change of status. What grace we have. What good news we have to tell one another, to brace one another up. An amazing gospel. Notice verse 21 again in our text. It's like Uncle Sam. You know a picture of Uncle Sam. He says, I want you for the U.S. Army. It's like, and you, you see that? And you, who were once alienated, you see that? How personal. You who were once this, yet now you're that. See, there's, there's, there's this change, there's this currently versus historically. And that has to be true if you're going to inherit The saints in the light, if you're going to be partaking of the inheritance of the saints in the light, you have got to have a then and now. 
Else you're not saved. You're not reconciled if there's not a then and a now in your life. Currently versus historically. We all have it, don't we? Keeps us humble, doesn't it? Keeps us, we, we remind, we're reminded of what we've been saved from. You know, the Lord's Supper is good for that. So we remember Him. We remember that even this week, were it not for the efficacy of the blood of Christ, He would have to die again. Because I've sinned again. Let me say this here, just to clarify. Scripture speaks of us being reconciled to God. Now this was a bit of a stretch for me. Remember the definition of reconcile is to change, to be changed. Scripture speaks of us being reconciled to God, not God to us. And I think it's important because we are the ones who change. We are the ones who need to conform to an immutable holy God. He does not break any rules to reconcile us. He does not change anything so that He can accept us. He is immutable. His relationship with us might, is changing, thankfully, by the grace of God. But His character does not change, and He does not, by any means, justify the guilty who do not trust in Christ. You know, He has to be just in His work of justification. Or he's not God anymore. And so we are reconciled to God. We are conformed to God. We are changed to his. We become participants, partakers in his plan, in his agenda, in his will, in his kingdom. You see, he does not change. Now, what have I left out? What have I left out of this passage? Surely you've seen it. Surely you've seen what I've left out. I've said all of this just like the passage does. I've said all this to say the next. All this great and glorious change of status for the sinner comes at a staggering cost. An unspeakable price. An incredible, unfathomable price. Because God makes this great point of His beloved Son, of His virtue, of His preeminence, of His power, of His greatness, of His majesty. He makes all of these statements. But his, one of the greatest glories of Christ is His saving work. His saving work is now before us. And how does Christ accomplish this work of reconciling us to the Father? Now here is the power of the apostolic commentary on the meaning of Golgotha. Because should you or I have been there with the weeping women and the sneering priests and the callous soldiers and the weary Simon, and are 
blood-stained Savior, if you had been in the crowd, you wouldn't have gotten this either. I don't think we would have. So we have this apostolic commentary, you see, to tell us what was going on on Calvary's Hill. What was going on at Golgotha? The significance of that event would have escaped our comprehension. And so as Brother Arlen mentioned in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 19, Paul says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That was what was going on. God was in Christ and the people were not comprehending what was going on. But our text says, as we think about the cost of your salvation, the cost of my salvation, the cross of Christ. We have looked at the benefits. And so the cost-benefit analysis here is that this preeminent Christ, this glorious creator, this head of the church, this firstborn from the dead, this preeminent one has gone to the cross. Our text says in verse 20 that Christ made peace through the blood of his cross. It was the bloody cross that paid for my and your status change. You know, a crossless Christ is no savior. It just puts you back in verse 15 through 18. A glorious God, but no savior. We're still at odds. We're still not reconciled to God. But with a crossless, with a cross Christ, with a cross-bearing Christ, with one who is lifted up, we have a Savior. And so it was this much-beloved Son of God, whom God the Father was pleased to give for His enemies. You see, blood was demanded for sin. It was demanded by God. And if you think about it, the gospel is a message of how, you can be, how Christ can save you from the Father. You see, God who is rich in mercy said to the Son, if I would wax, if I would be thinking of a, of a, of a conversation in eternity past, <clears throat> he said, I will... I will accept your blood instead of theirs. Instead of theirs. I will accept your blood instead of theirs. And the Son, for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. And I used to think, I'm not sure which way it means about despising the shame, do you think he despised that feeling of shame when the, when the chief 
priests were sneering up at him and saying, hey, you know, you said if you would break this temple down, you know, well, why don't you come down? Why don't you get off the cross if you are the Son of God? That was a very shameful, mockery thing, mocking thing. Do you think he despised that shame? I think it means... that he thought of nothing about the shame. Who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, just thought the shame as nothing. Maybe that's what it means. I am willing to bear this shame for my people, for their salvation, and that the joy of my exaltation before God. Just read, just, just read John 17 again that they might behold my glory, the glory that I've had with you before the world was. I would that they would be with me, that where I am, they would be with me so that they could behold my glory. Jesus, as we think about the price that he paid, He cried on the cross, I thirst. So that you don't have to commiserate with the rich man in hell about the lack of water. What Christian has not taken comfort from Hebrews 13 and verse 5 where Christ says, I will never. That means I will never. There's never an occasion that I will not be with you. He says, I will never leave you or forsake you. In your darkest hour, I will be there with you. Who of us has not taken comfort from that? The martyrs down through the ages have taken comfort from that. I will be with you, Christ said. Yet, do you know that that blessing was bought by the abandonment and the forsaking of God when Christ was at his darkest hour? That blessing was bought for you so that you could take comfort and he did not have the comfort of his heavenly father at the hour of his death. He cried, brothers and sisters, sinner, he cried. A cry that eternity had never heard. My father, my father, like verily, verily, He says, my father, my father, why have you forsaken me? He cried in anguish. He was cast out for your inclusion. He became an alien so that you could become a citizen. He took the stain of sin upon himself so that you could wear the white robes of righteousness. Think about it. How can it be that the one who was pleased that in him all the fullness should dwell was also pleased to bruise him? He was pleased to crush him. The one who was pleased over his fullness and his preeminence, his beloved son, it says in the scripture that he was pleased to crush him. How can that be? It's because your sin and my sin were on him. 
But Isaiah 53, verse 11, A says, He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. That is the meaning of the word propitiation. Satisfaction is made to the Father for the sins of his people. It is like the virtue and the glory of this beloved Son were weighed against all the sin of the universe. And the death of Christ and the suffering of Christ and the travail of Christ's soul. God said, it's enough. I am satisfied. It is finished. I am satisfied with the price. Verse 22 says, we are reconciled in the body of his flesh through death. See how, brothers and sisters, how the incarnation is absolutely essential for your salvation. The body of his flesh through death. The preeminent Son of God took upon him humanity so that humanity could become the sons of God. Make no mistake, his death is your life. His death is your life. His travail is your rest. His shed blood is the balm for your sin. His writhing on the cross is so that you wouldn't have to writhe in hell. His lifting up is to stop your going down. When the text says the body of his flesh, it means flesh like you have, like I have. Flesh that feels, emotions that feel. Yet, in all the labor and travail of his soul, as he hung on the cross, you know, he was crucified around 9 a.m. He hung on the cross until 12 a.m., until 12 p.m., 12 a.m., 12 noon. For three hours, and he conversed there he, he asked his father to forgive them, for they know not what they do. He received the penitent, the penitent sinner, he, uh, the thief on the cross. He received him. He said, today, you will be with me in paradise. What words to die by? What words to die by? He, on the way to Golgotha, he, he told the weeping women, he said, don't weep over me. You know, he, he was an amazing Savior. He is an amazing Savior. Always ministering to others. Always extending grace. Always reaching out. From 12 o'clock noon to 3 p.m., there was darkness. Darkness over all the earth. Over all the earth. Not just in the Mediterranean area, all the earth, as the light of the world approached his death. And yet at the very last, the forsaken son cried with a loud voice, he says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. And I agree with Spurgeon when he said, 
my blood boils with indignation at the idea of improving the gospel. Yours should too. We have a preeminent Savior who the Father was pleased to give for us. We should be pleased. Do you see what a slap it is in the face of Almighty God to try to improve the gospel? What a horrible stench that must be. What a disaster. If God is pleased to put the work of reconciliation in the hands of Christ, we should be pleased to leave it there. He didn't give it to you. He gave you the ministry of reconciliation and the word of reconciliation, but not the work of reconciliation. Look to Christ, not yourself. Look to Christ, not your church. Look to Christ, not your works. And then the closing admonition of this text is that great word, if. Verse 23, if. If indeed. How do you understand that? That just means that those who are in the sight of God as holy and blameless and above reproach, they continue in the faith. And if you don't continue in the faith, you've never been above reproach in His sight. That's what that means. Excuse me. If you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel, the hope of the gospel. Truly there's an expectation coming from the gospel that we haven't realized yet. I trust that you are not moved, not moved away from the hope that is in the gospel. What is that hope? Just a few verses back from our text. It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Well, I want to thank you for your kind attention. And may we, may this impact how much we sin this week. When you understand the incredible price that it took to change your status with God. Let's pray. Father, We thank you for your word. We ask your blessing upon it. We pray that you would bless this church. We pray you bless this congregation. We pray you bless Arlen as we baptize him. Father, we just uh, ask your blessing for all those who have heard the word, heard the gospel, that you would prick their hearts and that the gulf that is fixed would become reality, that it would be real to us as unbelievers, that there is this great gulf that needs to be bridged. But in the gospel, we hold forth the Lord Jesus to every sinner here as the answer for your estrangement, for your non-participation in the kingdom of God. Father, I pray that you bless your word through Christ. Amen. Well, we're dismissed.